Thank you, Ben. That's a great illustration of the latter uh, for what we're going to be talking about here in the book of Jude. And I like that and the, the idea that there are people who are distracting us and trying to get us to, to lean to the left or to the right and, and to step off course of being faithful to what uh, God's Word teaches us. Another illustration I thought about is scammers. Have you ever been uh, exposed to a scammer? I'm not saying you fell for it, but you've come across a, a text, an email, maybe a, a fake Facebook friend invite. How many of you guys ever experienced that? Somebody that was trying to scam you. Uh, it could be something you get in, in the mail even. Well, according to the FBI, Americans lost $10.3 billion last year to Internet scams alone. That doesn't account the phone and the text and those other kinds of scams. And the most prominent of those scams is called a phishing scam. Uh, about 300,000 people last year fell victim to a phishing scam, which is defined as the use of unsolicited email, text messages, and telephone calls posing as legitimate companies and seeking your personal financial and or login credentials, you know, your username and password. And I had to think, how is it that criminals are so successful at getting people to hand over such personal information at such great financial risk? How is this such a successful thing for them? And it's that those scammers know how to try to get you to trust them. Right? They pose as someone you know, as an organization, a charity, a company that you use and that you trust. And they try to uh, create a sense of urgency that you've got to do this now or they're going to cut off your power or you're not going to be able to access your funds or whatever. They create this, this fear. And, of course, the way to avoid falling for these scams is to be wary of any unsolicited messages that you get uh, be on your guard. Don't be overly trusting. Don't rush to doing whatever it is they ask you to do. And as destructive and as awful as those kinds of fraudsters are, they're nothing compared to the spiritual scammers that are out there today. They're after something far more costly than just your Social Security number or your bank account. They're after your heart, mind, and soul. They're after your children and your family. And when they get those things, it can be hard to get them back. Our society is filled with people who pretend to have our best interests at heart. They try to convince us that they really do care about us, that they're worthy of our trust, but it's all so that we'll buy what they're selling. So that we'll follow their social media accounts or click on their links or agree with their politics or donate to their cause. But all they're about is money, popularity, fame, the clicks and likes that are basically pats on the back, giving them all the progressive bona fides that they're looking for so that they seem to be enlightened and accepting and tolerant. But if you don't agree with what they believe and celebrate how they live, they're not very tolerant of you. They'll try to cancel you. They'll try to shut you down. And sadly, that's just out there in the culture. Sadly, there are increasing numbers of churches, ministries, denominations, well-known pastors and religious leaders around the country, even in our own area that get on TV, that get online, and they're caving to the progressive culture. There's a growing laxness about sexual morals, a revulsion at the exclusive claims of Christ. And more and more false teachers are creeping into our churches. And it's not that there's some new clarity 
that's been discovered about what the Word of God says on these issues? No, this is a complete and utter rejection of the clear teaching of Scripture in favor of what the culture currently says is the right thing. We live in a day that's not dissimilar to the first century Roman world where the little book of Jude was written. And and if you haven't turned there yet, turn to Jude. It might take you a little while to find it. It's a tiny little thing. It's easy to flip right past it, but it's right before the book of Revelation. So it's the next last book in your Bible. Go ahead and turn to the book of Jude. Jude was written to churches that were experiencing the same kind of struggle we face today. That they were needing to contend for a faith that was worth fighting for. And just as it was 2,000 years ago, Christianity is under attack today. When Jude was writing to these churches, they were under political attack. They were under cultural pressure. And that had invaded the churches and into the hearts and minds of Christians like an intruder that was dressed up to look and sound good but was there to lure them into a false sense of security. And the same thing is happening today. And just like the fishing scammers, they are dangerous and they are out to take advantage of your trust and your charity. And we must beware them. Now, in the book of Jude, you know, there are a number of Judes or Judases. That's the same name. It's the Greek version of Judah, the Hebrew name. And there are several of them mentioned in the New Testament. But this letter was written by Jesus' half-brother, okay, a son of Mary and Joseph and the brother of James. And like his brother James and his other brothers, Jude was not a believer during Jesus' ministry. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And when he witnessed the resurrected Christ, he was converted. He became a believer and became a well-known leader among the early churches there around Jerusalem, but not as well-known as his his brother James. James was the, the, the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And so the way Jude introduces himself here as a servant of Jesus and brother of James really speaks to his humility. He doesn't mention that he's also a brother of Jesus. But these relationships, a servant of Jesus, a brother of James, also gives him authority as he writes this letter. So today we're just going to look at the first four verses of Jude. I'm going to read that and then we're going to pray. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are the called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ our only Master and Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word that is so relevant to us today, for its truth that has never changed over the centuries. And we pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts through this message today. In Jesus' name, amen. So in these first four verses, Jude is really laying out the purpose uh, for his writing, the crisis facing the churches, and the importance of what we're fighting for, that we are contending for a faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. And so I want us to examine this faith what it tells us about who we are and what we have in Christ, what we believe and what we must beware of as we guard our faith. So the first thing we see in verse 1 is that Jude outlines for us who we are, our identity. And he tells us, first of all, as he talks about himself, that we are purchased. 
We are purchased. As I said, Jude chose not to focus on his position as the half-brother of Jesus, but rather as Jesus' slave. And in this way, Jude is identifying with all Christians because we all share that. If we are believers in Jesus, we are all the servants of Christ. So Jude's saying, I'm not any better than you. I'm one of you. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own for you are bought at a price. If you're a Christian, you belong to Jesus. You are His servant. He is your Lord. And this not only speaks to our humility, remembering our position in Christ, but it also reminds us of our authority. We have authority as Christians. Because a slave in the Roman world here could have a lot of authority depending on who his master was. So if you're an imperial slave of a Roman senator or a governor, or just a very wealthy business person, or Caesar himself, and you go and you speak in his name, to reject you is to reject your master. So you carry great authority. So Judas claiming an authority that comes from Jesus to let us know that what he's writing in this letter is not, letter is not just his opinion, it's a message from the Lord, and to reject this message is to reject the true author of it. And we must not forget that as followers of Jesus, as we go into this world to share the good news, as we stand firmly upon the Word of God and share with other people what it says, as we fulfill the Great Commission, we go in authority, not because of who we are, but because of who we belong to. We are purchased. So Judas identified himself, and now he goes on to identify his audience. And unlike a lot of New Testament letters, this letter is not written to any one particular person or church. It's, It's like an open letter to churches and Christians in the area. So he doesn't identify them by name or location. He identifies them by who they are in Christ. And the first thing he tells them is that they are purposed. He tells us we are not only purchased, but we are purposed. Our calling, our purpose is central to who we are in Christ. And this word called is used ten times in the New Testament. It means to be chosen or set apart. Paul often liked to pair it with another word, and he would say that we are called to be saints. Literally, we are chosen to be set apart. You might remember Romans 8.28, he says that God works all things together for the good of those He has called according to His good purpose. We are purposed. We are called. And because we have been called by God to salvation, chosen by His grace, set aside for His purposes, secondly, He tells us that we are prized. We are prized. He says that we are called, we are loved, and we are kept. Now, the Greek words for for, uh, loved and kept are both in the perfect tense, which means that they are settled realities for the Christian. These are things that are not up for debate, These are realities that cannot be lost or changed. And the emphasis here is that we are loved by the Father. He is our Abba. We are His children. And He calls us to salvation out of His sheer love. Jesus delivered us from sin because God loved us. God doesn't love us because Jesus delivered us. God loved us first, and then we are saved. We are called. We are purposed because we are prized. John writes about this in 1 John 4, 10 and 19. He says, Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because He first loved us. So God's love isn't just something we have, which we'll talk about in a moment. It's who we are. We are the loved by God the Father. So we are purchased 
by Christ. We are, we are His servants. We are purposed by Him, called by Him to salvation, and we are prized by, we are loved by God the Father, and then finally we are protected. He says that we are kept. Now, kept is an unusual Greek word. It's one of Jude's favorite, though. He uses it five times in this short 25-verse letter. And he uses this word here because he knows that we need to be reminded that not only does Jesus save us, He keeps us. He guards us as we contend for the faith against those who want to deceive and destroy us. And this is such a great reassurance that those who are called to and loved by God are also kept for Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance, get this, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And not only is our salvation kept, but he says, you are being guarded. That's that same word. You are being guarded. You are being kept. You are being preserved by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy 1.12. He said, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep, to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Jesus said, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So the Bible is extremely clear on the preservation of the saints. That by His work on earth, Jesus obtained our salvation. And by His continual work in heaven, Jesus sustains our salvation. When you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you are called, you are purchased, you are prized and loved, you're not going to be lost again. He's got you. He's not going to let you go. Jude expounds on this at the end of his letter. So he wants to bookend this letter about us fighting, contending for the faith with this promise, this assurance that we're guarded, we're kept. Our salvation is not at stake. Look at verse 24. He ends the, 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 uh, the letter basically saying, Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. He will preserve you. He will keep you. That is who we are. As followers of Jesus, we are called by God. We are loved by God. We are kept for God by Jesus Christ. No matter what comes, no matter how life can be so difficult, no matter whether we struggle or stumble, Jesus will not fail us. That's who we are. And because of that, he goes on in verse 2 to tell us what we have. Three things he tells us that we abound in. He says that, first of all, we abound in mercy. Mercy is a central theme of the Bible. It's one of the major characteristics of God. And you could define mercy simply as not receiving what you deserve. Okay? We deserve eternal death and punishment in hell because of our sins. In God's mercy, He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He spares us that punishment. So when we sin against God, we cry out for His mercy. We want His forgiveness, His grace. One of the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And Jude makes that connection in verses 21 through 23. Look at at those verses. He says, uh, Keep yourselves in love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy 
on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So what Jude is saying is that we should not only look for mercy from Jesus Christ, but we should extend that same mercy to those who are doubting and to those who are defiled and devastated by sin. Because we have received such great mercy from God, we should extend that mercy to others. We abound in mercy. We have enough of it to share. Secondly, we abound in peace. We not only need God's mercy to save us from the punishment of sin, we need God's peace to rescue us from the effects of sin. Because of sin, we live in a world in conflict. We're in conflict with each other. We're in conflict with creation. We're in conflict often with ourselves. Paul writes about that war between the Spirit and the flesh that can rage within us. Jesus told us that in this world we will have trouble. We're going to worry and get anxious. We're going to deal with sickness and grief and disappointment. We need the peace, the shalom of God as we contend in the world in which we live. And as I've said before, that word shalom means far more than just the absence of conflict. It includes health and well-being and wholeness. And that's what Jesus gives us. In addition to His mercy, He gives us spiritual, mental, relational well-being. He's here to heal us. One New Testament scholar wrote, Shalom includes everything given by God in all areas of life. It's an encompassing word. Which is why Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, when he's talking about prayer, he said, Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, the shalom of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God shows us mercy. God grants us peace, but we also abound in love. And 1 John 4 tells us that God just doesn't give us love. God is love. It is His love that undergirds that mercy. It is by His love that we experience that peace. The Greek word here is agape. God has an agape love for us. That's the kind of love He wants to express through us to the world. And that word agape means unmerited love. It's love that you can't earn. It's love that's unexpected. It's a love that seeks the good of others without any payback for yourself. It flows from the heart of God to a world lost in sin, and it's the love that indwells and transforms the hearts and lives of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. Again, John writes about this love in 1 John 4. He says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in Him and He in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in Him. So we've seen who we are in Christ. We are the called and loved by God and the kept for Jesus Christ. And we've seen what we possess in abundance because of that. That we have abundant mercy and peace and love. It's who we are. It's what we have. In verse 3, Jude tells us what we believe. Look at verse 3 again. He says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. So Jude finally gets to the reason why he's writing, and he tells us this was not the original letter he was going to write. He was going to sit down and write some nice, encouraging, devotional, all about the salvation that they shared in common. But then he turned on the news. He pulled up Facebook. He started to see what people were saying on Twitter. And he was alarmed at what he was seeing. 
He was alarmed by what he was hearing about what was being taught in the churches around him, this lurking danger of false teachers, and it changed what he was going to write. And so now he's writing a stark warning with urgency. Now Jude tempers the urgency of this letter by addressing them as dear friends. Literally, it's beloved. It's the word agapatoi. So he's just talked about the agape, the love of God, and he calls them agape toy, the people of that love. So Jude is not only saying that, that you have the unearned love and grace of God, but you have my love as well. Yes, I'm writing you a stern letter of warning, but I'm speaking truth to you in love. My beloved, my dear friends. He takes the theme of their common salvation he was going to write about and he turns it into a call to contend for the faith. Now, what does Jude mean by the faith? He means the gospel, the message of salvation as revealed in Scripture. Jude's not the only person in the New Testament to refer to the faith. He's not talking about faith in general as in believing. He's talking about the faith. Jesus uses that word. Peter and Paul and John use that expression. For example, Paul writes in Colossians 1.23, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So here Paul makes that link that when he talks about the faith, he's talking about the hope of the gospel they've heard, the gospel that has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, become a servant of it. So we can think of the faith as the gospel, as the truths and doctrines of Scripture, as the orthodox, biblical, Christian faith. That's what he means by the faith. Are we clear on that? He's talking about what God's Word teaches. And he tells us two things we must believe about the faith. First, we believe that it was a faith delivered. A faith delivered or entrusted. Meaning it was handed over to our care. The faith that binds us was given down to us, handed down to us, entrusted to us, he says, once for all. Now that Greek word literally means once for all and never again. He's saying the faith was delivered to us and it's a one-time deal. What we have in God's Word is complete. It is full and it is sufficient. There's nothing to add to it. There's not part B coming later on. It has been delivered to us once for all. So that means no new revelations can change what God's Word says. It needs no correction, no addition. It is fully and completely true as it has been handed down to us. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us in a definitive way by His Son. Jesus is the ultimate, complete revelation of God. And in, we heard a New Testament reading in 2 Peter 1. He says, Above all, you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So while we have in the faith that has been delivered to us once and for all is the complete and full will and knowledge and truth of God as revealed through prophets and apostles and through Jesus Christ. And it's been given to us, entrusted to us. Yet there are so-called pastors, teachers, and churches who are trying to bend the Word of God to fit the present cultural narrative. They're trying to sway Scripture so that it goes with the winds of cultural fads. But I've got news for you. The Word of God is not beholding to opinion polls. 
God's not putting His finger in the wind to say which way it's blowing. We are not free to change the Word of God. It has been entrusted to us once and for all. It is final and it needs no evolution. It needs no correction. That's what we must believe. And then Jude gives us the first of seven charges, first of seven actions that are required for us. This is the gist of his message right here. We believe the faith must be defended. Jude is sounding the red alert. He's calling us to arms, to stand ready for battle. We can now see the urgency in his writing and how high these stakes really are. You know, if Jude were to write a letter to the churches in the Western world in particular today, I don't think he'd change a thing. We must be like these saints of 2,000 years ago. This generation today needs to contend for the faith. And that word contend is a translation of the Greek word from where we get the English word agonize. It's the picture of an athlete competing in the Greek games, stretching their will, their mind, and their body, giving it their all to win. Or a soldier who's in the field of battle fighting for his very life. That's what this word means. So Judah's calling us to strive after, to fight for the faith. And he says it won't be a quick or easy victory. In fact, it will be agonizing at times. This is a battle we can't fight from the comfort of our pews or our couches. We can't shirk this responsibility or lay it at the feet of somebody else. We must carry proudly the banner of Christ and run headlong into a world lost in darkness. That's the battle that we face. We spent this beginning of this year looking at the armor of God. And if you remember, we talked about how important it is for us to know who our enemy is. And Paul writes in Ephesians 6.12 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. But it's against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this darkness against evil spiritual forces in the heaven. So our enemy isn't the poor soul out there who's been deceived. It's the one who is doing the deceiving. It's the lies. It's the falsehoods. It's the twisting of God's Word. It's the ideologies of this present age. That's what we war against. And so Jude concludes this part of his letter in verse 4 with who we must beware. And he refers to these enemies of the faith as invaders. He says they've come into the church by stealth. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And Jude aims to unmask them for the false teachers that they are. You know, they may look good, they may sound good at first, but they're not to be trusted. And Jude's not the only one to write to the churches of this time and warn them about such, her, uh, you know, such heresy and false teachers. Jesus warns about it, for one thing. Paul and Peter warn about it. John in 2 John 10 says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, meaning the teaching that's been handed down from Jesus to the apostles, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, he says, do not receive him into your home and do not greet him. Give no room to these false teachers. Today we might say, don't follow them on Facebook. Don't follow them on Twitter. Don't listen to their podcasts. Don't invite them into your home because they're spouting lies. Both Jude and John and the others warn us that while such people may be among us in our congregations, they are not among the called and the kept. They are the opponents of God and we must oppose them and what they teach. Now up on the screen, I'm going to put up a simple outline of Jude. 
And it goes like this. In verse 3, Jude calls us to contend for the faith. At the end of his letter, he's going to show us how to do that. So we'll get to that in a few weeks. In verse 4, he outlines the challengers of the faith, and then he's going to take the next several verses to unpack who they are. So he tells us to contend. He's going to later tell us how. He tells us who the challengers are, and then he's going to unpack that further. But for now, here in verse 4, he tells us three things about these opponents, these enemies of the church. He says, first, they deceive God's people. He calls them ungodly. Another translation of that word is impious. It means that they are in moral rebellion against God. It's the exact opposite of fearing the Lord. These people do not fear the Lord. And it's a word that is used almost exclusively in the New Testament to refer to lost people, to sinners who are unbelievers. So what Jude is telling us is these people look good. They sound the part of a Christian. They may be even in our pews, but they are far from God. They are not believers. They are not among the called. They claim to belong to Jesus, but their beliefs and their behaviors reveal otherwise. Paul foretells of this, and really, here in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Paul is being very prophetic, I think, about our day today. Listen to what he says, and I'm not going to read all six of these verses. I'm going to pick parts of them. I invite you to go back and read all, all of 2 Timothy 3, really. But he tells us that in the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without self-control, without love for what is good, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. In other words, they pretend to be godly. They pretend to be believers, but by their life they deny its power. And Paul says, avoid these people. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive. Adrian Rogers, longtime pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, pointed out that those who, receive the, those who receive the truth, reject the truth, and ridicule the truth will inevitably attempt to replace the truth. And that's what we see in our culture today. And sadly, it's warming its way into churches. They deceive God's people. Secondly, they distort God's grace. Jude says these people are already condemned by God because of their character, they're ungodly, but also because of their behavior. They twist the grace of God into a license to sin. Belief and behavior always go hand in hand, guys. That's why what we believe matters, because it will determine how we live our life. Second Peter 2. Peter says, but these people... He's writing about the same people Jude's writing about. A lot of people... There's a lot of correlation between Jude and Second Peter. So they're writing about the same situation. And Peter says, but these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They'll be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. They are spots and blemishes delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people. They have hearts trained in greed, children under a curse. They've gone astray by abandoning the straight path. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. These infiltrators have so twisted God's grace and the salvation, the forgiveness that Jesus died to purchase that they've turned these things into occasions to sin. 
They take Paul's clear teaching about grace versus the law and they twist it to say that they don't have to live under any rules. They don't have to live under any authority but their own. Yes, Paul teaches we're saved by grace and not by works of the law. Yes, we are saved from having to live under the Old Testament law into walking in the Spirit and in grace. But Paul also argues against an attitude of cheap grace. In Romans 6, Paul says, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? But y'all, there are people today to say that Jesus is only about love and acceptance, that He isn't a God of judgment, He would never send anybody to hell, and they tell us that we can't speak out against sin, we can't call people to repent and change their ways because that's bigoted and intolerant and hateful. They advocate a cheap grace. They twist the gospel into an open license to sin, and then they call on us to celebrate that with pride. New Testament scholar Jim Shaddix put it this way, claiming to revel in grace, they sneer at calls to holiness, purity, and forsaking the ways of the world. What's the big deal about alcohol and tobacco abuse? Pornography. A little profanity. Am I supposed to believe that God cares about these things? Yes. And to think He does not is to distort His grace that saves and to transform it into a license to sin. Listen, Christian freedom isn't the freedom to do whatever I want. It's the power to do what I should. We are not saved from holiness, but to be holy. We are not saved from being under authority, but we are brought under the authority of Christ. And that's why we must beware those who deceive God's people by what His Word clearly says, because they will distort God's grace and ultimately they will deny God's Son. To be a Christian is to identify yourself as being under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, submitted to His authority. The oldest and most basic confession of faith is, Jesus is Lord. But these false teachers then and now disdain the very idea of coming under anybody's submission. Jude's criticism, notice, isn't that these people deny Jesus' divinity or His goodness or His saving work on the cross. No, they deny His Lordship. They are saying and believing all the right things, but it's not translating into how they live their lives. And to this day, there are people who want Jesus to be their Savior... They want Him to be their buddy. They want Him to be there to answer their prayers and help them out in tough times. They want to go to heaven, but they don't want Jesus as their Lord. But guys, it's a package deal. You cannot be a follower of Jesus while living as a law unto yourself. You can't be a Christian and not be held accountable to Christ, His Word, and His church. We must never take God's grace for granted or abuse it. And we must never try to throw away His authority over our lives. And we must beware of and avoid those people who do. We must contend for the faith against those who would deceive us, distort God's grace, and deny the authority of God's Son. Now, of course, the question remains, David, how do we do this? Well, as I said, we'll get to that. But in verses 20 and 21... Jude tells us really three things. Like I said, we'll get to this more fully. But in Jude 20 and 21, he tells us that we have to keep ourselves in the love of God, build ourselves up in our most holy faith, and keep watching prayer lest we fall into temptation. 
Those are three things we must do to beware of these people, avoid them, and contend for the faith. But the point of these verses today is that the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battlefield. And Jude is calling out to us across the millennia. And he's saying, on your feet, the time for leisure is past. Contend. Agonize. Put in your maximum effort. The Christian faith, in all its fullness, in all its completeness, is worth fighting for. Will you fight for it? Now, of course, you can't fight for a faith you don't have. You may be here today, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You need to start climbing that ladder. You need to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I have rejected the grace of God up to now, but I want to receive the grace of God. I need that mercy. I want to be called and purchased by you. I want to be kept by you. Maybe today you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And the minute you do, you become a son or daughter of the King. The minute you do, your sins are wiped away. You are bathed in the grace of God. You're the recipient of His mercy. And His Holy Spirit comes and dwells in your heart to keep you for the rest of eternity. Do you need to do that today? I'm going to be standing down front in just a moment. I invite you to come. Put your trust in Jesus for salvation. Maybe God is calling you and your family to join our church, to become members here, to worship and serve here. Or maybe God is just calling you to wake up, to get up, and to stand up for what His Word clearly says. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are grateful for Your Word, for its bluntness, for its truthfulness, for the grace and mercy and love in which it is given to us. Not to condemn us, but to free us, to save us from ourselves, from our sin, from Satan who is at work in this world to deceive and distort. God, I pray that You would speak to our hearts today and in the weeks to come. God, equip us, encourage us, rally us together because the battle is here and we didn't invite it, we didn't seek it, but it's been brought to us. May we stand firm and clear fighting for the faith that is worth it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.